Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, today I'm continuing my series of interviews with some of the foremost experts on Stoicism from around the world, and I'm talking with none other than Nancy Sherman, the Professor of Philosophy from Georgetown University. Uh, So Nancy has been on the show before, and if you want to listen to that episode, then you can support me on Patreon and get the episode there. Uh, And it's always good to talk to Nancy. She's got such a unique perspective on Stoicism. And that's what I'm really enjoying about uh, all of these interviews. It's that everybody has their own unique take on Stoicism. And so I'm really excited to put it all together and try to understand, you know, what is the general consensus on what the essence of this philosophy is. But for now... I'm really excited to show you this interview because it was really productive. We discussed a lot of things, including uh, mostly talking about the Stoic approach to emotions uh, and also a lot about Seneca and how Seneca's life was really relatable to kind of what we face today and um, how we can really get a lot of really great understanding uh, around the essence of Stoicism from the writings that we have from Seneca. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Nancy because she's got quite the resume And so I'm going to look over here and uh, make sure I get everything right here. But Nancy Sherman, she is a New York Times notable author. Now, she is the author of the following books, many of which you've probably heard of, uh, including After War, Healing the Moral Wounds of Our Soldiers, uh, The Untold War, Inside the Hearts, Minds and Souls of Our Soldiers, which was a New York Times editor's pick, Uh, Stoic Warriors, The Ancient Philosophy Behind the Military Mind, Making a Necessity of Virtue, Aristotle and Kant on Virtue, Uh, The Fabric of Character, Aristotle's Theory of Virtue, and she's also the editor of Critical Essays on the Classics, Aristotle's Ethics. Now, Nancy has also written over 60 articles in the area of ethics, military ethics, uh, the history of moral philosophy, ancient ethics, the emotions, moral psychology, and psychoanalysis. And she's delivered over 60 named or keynote lectures and plenary addresses, both in her hometown of D.C. and abroad. So that's uh, that's everything you need to know for now about Nancy Sherman. And I think we can all agree that we've got quite the expert on the show. And uh, honestly, it was just such a great conversation. It's just one of those conversations you look back and you think, you know, wow, I'm so glad that I was able to have that conversation and get that kind of information out of Nancy because it's going to be very valuable for all of us and help us to understand Stoicism on a bit of a deeper level. Um, So anyway, I'm going to put the show notes, sorry, links in the show notes to where you can find Nancy Sherman online and where you can buy her books. If you love this interview, which I'm sure that you will, make sure you reach out to Nancy and let her know just how much you appreciate her coming on the show and sharing her expertise. But uh, without any further ado, I present to you Professor Nancy Sherman. All right, Nancy, it is so good to have you back on the podcast and and to have a conversation with you. We've got, now you're in DC, right? 
I am indeed Washington, DC. There we go. I love it. So we've got the mist behind you. We've got the Oracle of DC here. Gonna drop some <laughs> wisdom on us all today. <laughs> and, uh, okay. and I'm so excited to talk with you. And I want to start because I've already given everybody an intro to you at the start of this podcast, but I want to start with your new book that you have or that you're working on at the moment. Obviously, we'd love to know when it's going to be coming out, but it's going to be called The Stoic Way. So tell us, why are you writing a book purely about about Stoicism or another one? Because I know you have another book about purely about Stoicism mm-hmm. um, and about uh, how it's influenced, obviously, the military. But why are you writing another one? Why are you so interested in this philosophy? And, and what do you think you're going to bring to the, uh, to the philosophy? So... I've been teaching Stoic ethics quite a bit in the past um, mm, decade or more. Um, The last book on Stoicism was uh, Stoic Warriors 2005. Um, And I've um, focused to some degree on military culture. Um, That said, as I've been on more and more talk shows and the like, talking about Stoicism with folks, and sometimes in conversation with folks and, and also picking up on some of the online material, I've really thought that the picture's lopsided mm-hmm. and that what people are getting isn't a complete uh, picture of Stoicism. In part, I am, I'm, a, I'm a philosopher of ancient philosophy, so mm-hmm. uh, I come mm-hmm. to it as, a, um, as someone pretty steeped in this and someone who's uh, spent a lot of her time working on Aristotle. Aristotle's ethics, um, and I. Some of it is that I don't think people really understand how much the Stoics uh, are indebted to Aristotle. Some mm. of it is uh, a reversal, or you know, a rejection of his view that we're that happiness is fragile and that it depends on external goods and um, and our investment in them. But they never give up on the sociality of life on the social connectedness of life. That's part of their cosmopolitanism. That's Mm. part of the idea that we are all in a fellowship together of commonality. And they got to believe that in part because they've got a Roman empire they're dealing with. Mm. And so there's a big spread out there of connecting people from this border to that border and well Mm. beyond. So they've got to be able to think about that, but they have to put it in its place that it can't fully disrupt uh, tranquility in insofar as you know the loss of an attachment or the development of an attachment that's not fully rest, reciprocated or the like. So I really wanted to get at the more nuanced view of Stoicism that isn't grit at all costs, hmm. that isn't self ruggedness at all cost that isn't military macho or suck it up i've lived in that culture taught in that Mm. culture um at all costs that's not stoicism they Mm. really believe that we are naturally attracted to a lot of conventional goods that we can't quite give up we just have to shift what our attitude is toward them so that Mm. we're more cushioned if we don't get them or we lose them mm, okay so so i guess what you might be saying is that uh it's it's not necessarily supposed to be a complete detachment from everything worldly or everything external to us it's more of an understanding 
uh, as I think has been made clear many in many circumstances, but an understanding of we don't need them, but it's not that it's it's not that they don't benefit our lives in in many ways. Is that essentially what you're saying? Well, I think we do need them in some ways. Mm. Um, it would be hard, as Seneca tells us, to imagine a life without friends. He spends the latter part yeah. of his life writing letters to a friend, Lucilius. Mm. Um, he rethinks notions of fame or gloria by thinking, you know, it really matters how I'm remembered, and maybe you too. Mm. Um, he writes plays, um, really, really powerful plays. It may not express his philosophy, but sometimes there are foils to it, and sort of, you know, one is about Hercules and the guy with enormous strength, you know, slays dragons and monsters. But he's he's a action guy and totally consumed by action. Mm. And he, at the end, when he commits a horrible deed, he he wants to kill himself. And his mm. father mm. reaches out and says, "You can't leave me." And his best friend reaches out and says, "I'll I'll find shelter for you." He doesn't himself know how to give himself mercy. Essentially, he's killed his children. Hmm. He doesn't know how to give himself any mercy at all, but his friends do. Seneca's telling us something hmm. that we can learn from the compassion of friends, that we can find self-empathy. This is very important for my work with um, service members who often um, find themselves in the middle of killing that they can't quite justify or collateral incidents that are fully permissible, legally permissible, and probably morally permissible by the laws of war, mm. but still feels horrible and seems to go against their own, own views of, of uh, what's good. So being able to find the resources that friends offer in a notion of resilience mm. and a notion of grit that has social undercurrents, I think is very healthy. And we need to be able to think about that a little bit more. Yeah. And, and I would agree with you. I think Seneca probably uh, similar to Marcus Aurelius as well. They, they both sort of had this view that uh, there was a very, very important aspect to friendship and, and, and connection and, and even, I mean, look at Marcus Aurelius, his, his first writings in his, in his meditations were him talking about all of the beautiful people in his life who had added to his character, the things that he'd learnt from them. Um, and, and essentially sharing that this is something that we need. We need to take the best parts of the people who are in our lives. And, and uh, I mean, even that argument alone would sort of, make the idea that we don't need friends, but it's good to have them void, right? Because it's like, well, you do need friends. You do need people in your life surrounding you who have qualities that you don't, because by surrounding yourself with people who have qualities that you don't, you inevitably pick up those qualities and become better if if you look for those for those ways that you can improve, right? Right. So I guess part of what they're trying to do in their fine tuning of lots of terms is think about what need means. So mm. they have a, 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 a stipulated term that you don't necessarily go for something that's an indifferent, a preferred indifferent, like a friend, in a way that is a desire. 
mm. in the way that Aristotle talked about it, desire. Um, you have this other thing that you, that is part of your um, going toward and avoiding things, and that is this um, selection. Um, and it's a, 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 a you you approach the impulses in a way that allows you to select without sticky. I say sticky attachment or a sticky acquisitiveness. Mm. And so, and to lose without, or to be threatened with loss without fearful avoidance, mm. um, sort of anxious aversion. So they want to still have what we today would call behavioral ways of going towards something and, and being attracted to it and, um, uh, I mean, our survival depends upon staying away from certain kinds of deadly threats, threats mm. that are unnatural for uh, for us to face. You know, stick your hand in fire. You do it once and you won't do it twice. Mm. And that's how we, we teach children. So you need to have that kind of response. And you might just say, oh, it's it's, you know, it's automatic. Or in some cases, they're behavioral responses. So but we need to train a behavior, they say, that isn't saturated with acquisitiveness and saturated with the dread of loss. Mm. And so that's how I would put it. It's not that they're telling us to give up that stuff. It's better to have health than not have health. It's better to have friends than not have friends. You just have to have them in a way in which you're prepared for possible loss. And that's mm. what the training about yeah so that's how i see it it's to help you get rid of some of the debil the debilitating aspects of attachment and loss that we suffer and that creates enormous amount of anxiety and stress in our lives hmm. yeah i love this i think you're really touching on something that does bring a lot of people confusion when they read from the stoics because there is a lot of detachment there and, and I don't know how this episode will come out in the sequence of episodes, but I was just interviewing Massimo Pigliucci then, and he'll be the first episode when I release it soon. But um, basically, we talked about the history of Stoicism and how there is a history in Stoicism of constantly improving upon the philosophy and taking the best ideas from other philosophies and bringing it in and and essentially trying to to make sure that we're always moving things forward based on our understanding of humanity and science and, and psychology and and everything and that's what i love about this conversation that we're having now is you're literally trying to do that you're trying to take a look and say here's the best of stoicism and and here's what's a little bit confusing right for people yeah and i think that's right i think that's right if you want to have a viable modern stoicism then you can't ignore what we know about psychology you can't mm. ignore that we suffer loss and the more mm. intimate the attachments a child a husband and the and the more untimely the deaths mm. the more we're going to suffer that's the way empathy is built mm. um and what do you mean by not, untimely do you mean do you mean as in uh, death is becoming a little bit less common now or like less no, 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 untimely in the sense that um you lose a child in their prime as a okay. parent yeah oh okay sorry yeah yeah okay I, I get it now yeah um in a tragic loss parents of, of service members mm. who maybe 
you know, kind of getting used to it, but still not, or it's a terribly disfiguring death and you're up close and intimate. Mm. A fire who watches people burn to death mm. or tried to save someone and failed to look underneath uh, a bed, though he went into the bedroom three times and failed yep. to look under the bed to find a child. Okay. Mm. Those are very intimate and they're gap and they're and they can be ghoulish. Mm. Um, the, so we know that the way the brain imprints that stuff is not uh, going to make it go away easily. Mm. It's, it's very vivid. Um, it's probably very visually imprinted and it may be in a part of the brain that stores differently than in the discursive pre-rehearsal Tell yourself that this happens to other mortals way that the, 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 the Stoics teach. Mm. So we want to be able to update that a little bit. And we, mm. you know, and, and the, the Stoics were themselves updating it. Seneca has consolations to Marcia, who loses family members. We're not quite sure who, but mm. probably a child. And um, he says, you should grieve for a while. Mm. He, as in many rich many traditions a certain amount of grieving and distress makes sense so he's not getting rid of that he's trying to put some boundaries on it so that it doesn't become a protracted dysfunctional syndrome mm. yeah. that makes good sense that's healthy resilience to my mind and so yeah. if we can find more notions within stoicism that don't make them out to be loonies, but rather mm. to be humans, the better we are. The mm. cynics may borrow a lot, um, or at least, you know, the cynics are a part of the transmission route from Socrates to them. Um, you know, have a very controversial figure at their head, and that's Diogenes of Sinope. Mm. He's, he's a bit of a crazy um, meaning, you know, he's funny. He's like, he's like a stand-up comic almost. He's yeah. hysterical, if you believe the uh, the reports. And, um, you know, he wants to get, a good British phrase, get the mickey out of you. Get You know, get a rise out of you. Mm. By, you know, in your face, you say, you know, you say money's a good thing. I say you should deface it. Mm -hmm. And take away coinage. You say, um, 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 you know, that I, you're looking for, a, he's a slave at some point, sold as a slave. You're looking for a master. I say, buy a master, meaning I'm a master of myself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he inverts a lot of meanings in order to turn things upside down a bit. Mm. And very influenced by Socrates, who had a very, very, who preached a simple life and could withstand all sorts of hardship and cold and absent lack of sleep. So mm. they they do a lot of that, especially Epictetus, a lot of hyperbole about the endurance and strength of human beings to withstand all sorts of deprivations. But you know, there's there's lots of strains in this complicated school, and one of them, a very important voice, I think, is the most important voice. I think often is Seneca's, and mm. he's he's walk he's trying to walk the walk in a horrible <laughs> empire yeah. with Nero as his boss. 
Mm. You know, I think I think uh, what you're saying here is actually really unique because I, I'm having a lot of interviews with people, and and I have had a lot of interviews with people who are thinking about stoicism in the past, and and not a lot of people look at Seneca as one of the more important voices of stoicism. And I think, and, and I actually like personally, I find his writings to be the most influential in my life. His was the first, not only because it was the first book that I read that was about stoicism, but it, it, it was also, he's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He's not living a life that cannot be deemed as perfect at all. And, and he's living in situations that are so much closer to what we live in today, as in, you know, there's, there's big problems that we have to deal with. Um, and I think what's really awesome about Seneca is, is he's just a person out there living his life, trying to do good things, but there's also a lot of challenges that he faces, especially with his character. I mean, being an advisor to Nero must have been unbelievably... Uh, difficult, you know, to, to try and, to try and navigate that landscape. Uh, and also just, he, he's a person who's doing things that are more like the things that we're doing today. Like not a lot of us are sitting down, you know, teaching people in a circle like, uh, like Epictetus. Uh, not a lot of us uh, have been shipwrecked like Zeno and now have to come up with a new philosophy. But a lot of us are, you know, I even think of myself, I'm a creative type, you know, I'm, I'm playing music um, Seneca was a playwright, you know, there's, he's, he's such a human being is what I'm trying to say. He's a human being and he's in a system. Yeah, he's subject to systemic constraints. Mm. And I think part of the attraction of, of, um, stoicism as in at Silicon Valley, uh, and people with a lot of power mm. and large egos and a fair bit of talent but also material aspirations is that they're trying to wean themselves a bit from it. Yeah. They know that it can contaminate, yeah. um, but they're still attracted to it. I mean, this mm. is also the military world. They, you know, want to live a simple life and they do often out there in the field, but they sure want a lot of medals on their breastplate mm. and, you know, and they can count the stripes and they know what they have to do to advance in a very, very conventional way. And yet they're very attracted to stoicism because it tries to wean them from some of mm. the attachment to acquisitiveness or to power or to glory or to fame. And so that's part of it. Um, you know, Seneca is complicated. He... Um, he, he's sort of a moral progressor, a doctor of the soul. He, he, he's the doctor, but then the patient. Um, mm. But he, you know, he knows why he was called back from Corsica by Nero's wife. And that was to teach Nero. And he doesn't want to lose his day job. And mm. he also likes wealth. There's no yeah. doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. He's got a lot of banquets. Um, and, um, you know, so some claim he's just a, you know, a blatant hypocrite. Mm. I think he's fascinating because mm. he is, as you say, in the real world and in the world of power. He's a power mm. broker. Um, and, and because he's in that real world, you might actually say that he can teach us more about uh, 
what stoicism's power really is as opposed to some of the other uh, philosophers he can he can teach us how to see stoicism in the real world right yes that's right he's definitely engaged in politics and mm. sometimes in cover-ups um yep. including you know why was britannicus killed um his stepbrother mm. um also nero's mother you know he mm. um uh on mercy may have come out just after nero's killing of his of, of nero's mother um mm. so he's an apologist mm. um he's but he's also he was brought on board by the mother because he was the best writer in town and she knew her son if he was going to be an emperor needed a good speech writer mm. so it's yeah it's very dirty it's definitely dirty politics in many ways yeah. but it's real stuff um where there is conflict and he's struggling as a moral progressor the other thing i think is that you know it draws me to stoicism in my particular view and i think it's really important is there's a big uh, uh, I'd say sort of almost exploitation at the moment of Greco-Roman stoicism mm -hmm. as a very hyper-masculinist uh, creed, Marcus Aurelius on a horse. Um, mm. You see this many times over. Um, and the idea of tough it out, you know, we can do it on our own. You know, whether or not what Ralph Waldo Emerson was influenced by the Stoics or not, but that idea of sort of self-reliance mm. and self-sufficiency. But the Stoics, you know, A, they weren't so clear of self-sufficiency is as Socratic or, you know, as pure as we sometimes make it out to be. Mm. And secondly, um, hyper-masculinist uh, views are filled with hatred and anger, and that's not what the Stoics recommend. Mm. Um, they're not, you know, they, they are trying to let go of the defensiveness that comes with outright aggression and outright hostility. And mm. the, that is often part of a creed that comes with that. So I'm going to be quite clear. I'm not, you know, I want to set the record straight in some ways. My um, love of stoicism is as someone who's spent her life reading ancient texts and and writing on Aristotle much of my life and mm. seeing where they're interacting with Aristotle, how much the, how much Socrates they brought on, how much of the cynics they kind of brought on and, and also healthy, healthy notions of resilience and psychotherapy, you know, in my world, in the military world that I have a foot in, there've been suicide um, epidemics that have been horrific on, mm. on, Precedented since 2009, and people need to be able to reach out and avail themselves of wide circles of support. Mm, and yeah. you know, I think the Stoics are not at all against that in any way, or about closing our borders narrowly. They're about mm. enjoying the social supports that are wider in a cosmopolitan world. Well, yeah, I, th I think I think that's one of the most important tenets of Stoicism. This idea that everybody is interconnected in some way, and that you know, you just by virtue of you trying to become the best version of yourself, you will send ripples throughout society and help others to do the same. And and you should 
aim to help as many people as you can to to live good lives and offer that support right because in the end we're all connected um, yes that's right yeah and, and and so i wanted to to kind of so essentially if you could kind of sum up where where you're at with this philosophy it might tell me if i'm wrong here you're essentially not saying that the philosophy is is wrong you're saying our interpretations of what they're saying aren't necessarily complete as it is right yeah i think that's very fair exactly that i think we've had selective cherry picking Mm. of the philosophy and sometimes they've been geared toward an interest in toughing it out grit Mm. uh, a rugged self-reliance and we've failed to see that the connective connective tissue that's part of our resilience is part of the stoic story Mm. Um, and we've also failed to see how the ways in which we can express our emotions and show others our emotions are still part of the story Mm. you know they have very complicated views about emotions there's three different levels of them uh, like autonomic arousal, almost proto emotions, ordinary emotions, and then uh, a sage's emotions. None of us are going to be sages. Hmm. Um, most of us are just going to be, as you say, striving to be as good as we can be and influencing hmm. us to be that way. And so that involves a lot of um, uh, vulnerability. Hmm. Uh, the vulnerability is going to be feeling ashamed that you did something wrong. That's a big part of Cicero's beef against, did this, did Cleantes really get it? That, you know, there was a guy named Alcibiades and he cried a lot when he wasn't as good as Socrates. Did, <laughs> did they get, did they forget about the mm. tears of Alcibiades? Um, you know, and, and so coming back to think about uh, the subtler contours of Stoicism and how it's very much still a part of the picture, I think is very important. Mm. I think I think this is a really really important dis- discussion to have, and and I think um, it's only going to allow more people to come into the fold, you know, to 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 get the benefit from from what this philosophy is. Now you mentioned the three types of emotions. I'd really mm-hmm. love it if we could kind of go through those, and and if you could kind of explain what they are and what they mean for us in our lives. Sure. So the Stoics are. Um, take a page from Aristotle. They take a page from Aristotle and thinking that at the center of an emotion is a belief or a cognition or a thought. Mm. And that uh, thought, they say, and this is pretty radical, you assent to in a voluntary way. Mm. Um, Most of us really don't think that in a full-throated way, but they especially Seneca, as he lays it out in On Anger, really have a kind of full-throated view of how much in control you are of your emotions. So you say yes to an impression or no to impression, yes that I've been dissed, or no, um, um, I wasn't um, psychologically damaged by you. Mm. And then you also say yes to how you should react. Um, I'm going to take revenge. I'm going to write a nasty opinion letter to the newspaper about how scandalous or libelous you've been to me. Mm. Um, 
I'm going to gossip behind your back about you. Okay. Or spread, you know, spread rumors about you. Um, and those are kind of ordinary emotions. Mm -hmm. A lot of us operate that way, you know, um, and they, and then of those, there are specifically four kinds, um, uh, reactions to what I was giving you is sort of reactions to, um, bads that are out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, reaction, so that sort of the anger kind of thing, or it could um, it could also be fear or threat, uh, fear to threats. Um, uh, reactions to things that are attractive out there in the world, goods in the world, so some mm. forms of pleasure. Um, there, um, specifically with regard to the future, um, is um, fear of an impending bad. That's you know fear of a threat. And um, um, with regard to the future, a desire, very, desi- very um, um, uh, future-oriented desire to get mm. some good future. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of goods and bads in the present or past and future. And yep. it makes for, a, for um, four different uh, major genus, you might say, of emotions. Hmm. Before you have any of these uh, these ordinary emotions, you, most of us have um, autonomic arousals. You know, you, um, you you hear I see I see a whole audience crying, or you know I see my daughter crying, and I might start tearing up. Mm. You know, just sort of comes without yeah. any without any warning. Uh, I'm in a shipwreck, and famous case Alice Gellius reports you know shipwreck, and even the sage's face goes green. You know, he mm. gets scared. Um, you just are assaulted by an impression of an impending danger or an impending bad out in the world, or it could be a good as well. You have some silly laughter at a sexist joke, but it mm-hmm. all comes out, and yep. you didn't assent to it, and it's just there. Yeah. Um, those are those are called um, propathei or proto emotions, mm-hmm. early early onsets emotions, first feelings. Mm. It's exactly what's happening right now because I'm noticing that as you're smiling and laughing, I'm slowly my you know my my mouth starts to smile and you know it's it just happens you know contagion right that's it so the contagion ones um, so those um, we're told you know you could you could exercise a little more control on them sometimes mm. don't nip them in the bud and make mm. sure they're ones you want to ascend to or 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 withhold assent. So we have two classes, first emotions, and they're very much like um, low road emotions is some uh, a neurophysiologist, um, neuropsychologist, neurobiologist told us, uh, um, uh, Joe Ledoux, he, caught, he talked about low road emotions. They don't quite get to the top of your brain. They're somehow in the nerve, you know, they're, they're part of your sympathetic and, and parasympathetic system. Mm. And they're very, that's very prescient for them even to think about that stuff. Then you get ordinary emotions that you're ascending to, and you're ascending to the reaction behaviors as well. And at the core of all these are impressions. You're, you're being hit by an impression, and you're reacting to an impression. So there's a cognition, a thought thing going on. Hmm. Most elevated of the three classes of emotions are called the good emotions, or EU, eupathei, for like eugenics, good, you know, good genes and they are ones in which you've really cultivated what you're 
viewing as the goods out there. Hmm. They're not going to be. It's not the 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 threat out there isn't going to be of the bear that's in front of you. You know, maybe you'll have a little proto proto threat of that, mm-hmm. but the threat out there is that is that you're going to do something bad, vicious, mm-hmm. morally bad. Okay, so that's called wariness or good wariness, good caution about slipping into evil. So is that kind of what people would call like your, your conscience? Your, 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 that, that... It could be, but you know, most, this is only at the elevated stages of being a sage. Hmm. Yeah. Very stable. They never get the judgment wrong. Full consistency in their yeah. knowledge base. Um, and then there's also joy in being virtuous, hmm. you know, really being virtuous. So we're talking about almost divine-like, divine-like uh, emotions. Mm. They're the epitome of what you might strive toward. Mm-hmm. And so we've got good feet. We've got good kind of caution. We've got good kind of joy. And we also have um, good kind of desire. You, It's called good wish or deliberative desire, rational desire. You are going for virtuous deeds. Hmm. Very stable, consistent way. You never get your judgments wrong. You don't ascend to the wrong things, et cetera, et cetera. So there's beginning emotions or autonomic arousals almost. Mm. You get ordinary emotions. Most of us are having those. And then you have good emotions. The journey in emotional cultivation and moral training is in letting go of some of the ordinary emotions, fear at the bear, fear loss of your son when he's going skiing in a really, really, mm. really, really dangerous place. Yeah. Um, fear that your husband may, or, or mother may be headed for a, a horrible, horrible dementia or stroke, something mm. like that is to get rid of some of that Mm -hmm. and instead control the stuff you can control, which is avoidance of vice and cultivation of virtue. Hmm. So they really do view that a lot lot of the growth and moral growing and striving to be good is through emotional management, emotional regulation, Hmm. so that you get up some of the worry and fret about the stock market failing, about the fires in Australia. Hmm. And you focus on the doing good deeds, the never doing something that's shameful, um, and taking joy in those good deeds, and in a very uh, cautious way, making sure you don't fall prey to the wrong sorts of influences and misinformation you know sort of a, a false facts you might say hmm. false you know false the, news. The, the fake news in our own minds yeah, exactly <laughs> could, could you so, call it a a a uh, an encouragement to get out of the past and the present and come to like what you can do right now right because it, it seems like a lot of fears and a lot of desires are based 
in places other than where we are right now right and, and it's well you might say though in you know looking at the fires in australia um you might say i not only need to do things environmentally that will reduce um uh carbon out there hmm. uh, and fossil fuel usage but i need to encourage others so that's hmm. something you can do mm-hmm. but on the other hand you this is a big stoic lesson you can they're into striving and striving and striving hmm. without getting hung up on the outcome hmm. right um it's 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 an internal journey not an external journey yeah. that means though I mean, I have to ask myself, you know, if everything I do comes to naught and I can't make any dent in the world, say environmentally, or say I'm a violinist and I go on the stage and night after night my Stradivarius breaks and, Mm. you know, there I am playing, you know, um, a Beethoven um, sonata and the strings pop, I'm not going to be invited back to Kennedy Center or Lincoln Center or the Sydney Opera House. Mm. It's not happening. There's a a certain amount of insulation from outcome we can take. And Mm. and at some point um, that we're just sort of aiming uh, at doing well versus aiming at out uh, versus trying to get some of the things we're aiming at realized in the world, I mm. think um, does um, have to sort of, uh, let me start that sentence again. At some point we need to realize that there can be enough f- failure of outcome that the greatest insulation we have or protection policies we take out against um, outcome success still won't protect us fully mm. I, 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 yeah it, it, it makes sense I, I, I guess I guess what I meant by being in the present actually I can describe it like this one of my clients recently actually said to me something that he heard which really uh, best describes this he said there's a time for being in the clouds but there's also a time for being down in the dirt and I think that the 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 time for being in the clouds is to go into the future and say, okay, well, potentially I could create this or I could be of influence here. But if you stay in the clouds for too long, then you get nothing done, right? So you have to come back to that present moment and get in the dirt and get in the in in the mindset of, okay, now it's time to, as you say, look at what you could do that is good and and look at what you could do that would be bad and try and aim for that good in the present moment, which is what creates the potential, right? Does that kind of make sense? Well, it does, but I guess I would add that striving and striving and striving without tangible results. Mm. If you're a doctor, striving... Mm. And striving and striving is say take a knee doctor, knee mm. replacement surgery, orthopedics. Striving and striving and striving without having a lot of luck with patients and their mobility doesn't really make for such a good doctor. Mm. Yep. Okay, even though that's doctoring is supposed to be one of those skills, say the Stoics, where you can have a great skill and you still can lose patients. But to have a really bad track record 
with respect to the surgeries you do, I'd say you should hang up your, you know, mm-hmm. hang up your knee mm-hmm. replacement surgical <laughs> <laughs> credentials or, you know, or go or get poor or <laughs> go for being poor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of one of those cases where you have to sort of say some of the cynic and stoic views about, you know, what does it matter what the outcomes are? It's just a striving. It's not hitting the actual target. Mm-hmm. For some kinds of things we do, it does matter. You know, mm-hmm. if you're an oncologist, I think you probably have a little more leeway because mm-hmm. science isn't that great and the disease of the body um, is has not yet been conquered. But knee replacements, we know a lot about. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're failing there, then, you know, maybe that's sort of in part your skill isn't so good or the outer resources that you can rely on aren't stably good. And so your system of support isn't so good. Mm. That makes sense. So, so, so yeah, I, I so... Just, it does getting getting down there and getting dirty. I mean, whether you're in the clouds or you're in the dirt, you, sometimes we do need to have results. And it's not just. Well, I tried to do it okay. Mm. I'm trying all along. Yeah, and I guess the dirt might be the wrong analogy. It's more, it, it's more okay, it, it might be like this. Uh, how did they get to being able to do a successful knee surgery? First, they had to envision that it might be possible, but then they had to come back to the present moment and study and experiment and, you know, like try to figure it out. And eventually they came to that result. But by coming to that result, it it was through a process of first envisioning what could be and then coming back to the present moment and doing what you could do in order to get there, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I would add a very critical piece, and that is Mm. with a team. Yeah. Yeah. There are very few things we do in life without full systemic structural support. Mm. And I think that's crucial. And that is a part of the kind of connectedness you referenced earlier with regard to um, Marcus. Um, We live in communities of knowledge, of resources, of supply chains of cloud software, Skype Mm -hmm. software, all of that. No one's doing it on their own these days. Um, And, um, you know, and we are really interconnected in this global world that we live in. And so I may have an idea, but unless I have a team of software engineers, if I'm a digital programmer, or I, you know, I work for LinkedIn or Skype or Dropbox or, or Stoicism online. Mm. I got to have the support system that's going to get it out there. Mm. Um, you know, and I think yeah. we need to think Stoicism that way. It's not a modern philosophy. If, you know, I'm going to go to some island on my own and Ignatius style meditate for a while. Yeah, mm. clear your head a lot. But if you're going to do things in the world, you're going to have a, you know, there's going to be some support. You're got to have skin in skin in the social capital game. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I think this is so important. And and if you look at if you look at what they said about say you know a sage doesn't necessarily need people, but he wants people or she wants people um, or friends. Uh, 
let's say that the sage was just alone on this planet. There were no more people. Is that really what a human does? Because they spoke about, you know, being in alignment with nature or doing what a human does. Is a human meant to just be alone on this planet without anybody else self-sufficient doing like doing what? <laughs> like, like it, it seems yeah. like we are very much meant to be interconnected and to be, it seems like even just biologically, we, we tend towards, you know, not wanting to be extinct. So we want to help each other and we want to make sure that the, you know, the society and the, the, the humanity progresses and grows and, and gets bigger and bigger. Like, what does a human yeah. do? They don't, they don't want to be alone. <laughs> they don't want to be alone. And actually it's a part of our nature mm. that we are social creatures. That's mm. Aristotle for sure. We are by nature social, but the Stoics deeply held that view as well. They actually went for nature in part because convention they learned from the cynics, you know, was put you into the lap of luxury puts you mm. into material acquisitiveness that you couldn't handle. So they backed off of this classic dichotomy in the, in the ancient world. Is it by nature or is it by convention? And they backed off of, of um, by convention through the Stoic lead a little bit. Um, and they ended up in nature. But to end up in nature and consistency in accord with nature that's in part in accord with your social nature. Mm. And they have to be able to wrestle with that idea in accord with your social nature and choosing as amongst the preferred indifference, your friend, having friendships and, and, uh, and the like. They have to have that kind of cohere with being somewhat more self-sufficient than say Aristotle had us be in his conception of happiness. Hmm. It's not clear they always come off in the right way, but that, but you know, some of the more hyperbolic claims have to do with kiss your child goodbye in the morning as if it, it, you know, because you may never see her again and keep practicing that and get used to being without people. Hmm. Well, that's the kind of training to, to, diminish the fact a little bit that conventionally by nature we're really attracted to living in groups and we need other groups but we get Mm. hurt by it we're vulnerable as a result but they're not giving up on our sociality and this idea of of, um they have a phrase called oikiosis or being at home in the world or being oriented toward the world sort of Mm. may start off with self-preservation but very soon it has to do with your social relatedness to others. Hmm. And I love that. Oikiosis? Yes. And it comes from a Greek word, oikia, which means um, uh, household, a house. And so it's sort of being at home in the world. That's beautiful. Um, I love that. mm -hmm. And I was just thinking as you're saying that, I, I really do love how... It can be interpreted in so many different ways, that idea that you should kiss your child and say you might not be alive in the morning, right? Because there is that side of the stoic interpretation that says we need to not be connected to to humans in su- at such a heavy degree, right? But the act of kissing your child on the head and, it, it, and, and saying you might not be here in the morning, it's 
almost a deeper connection to humanity because it says that while you're here, I need to appreciate you, right? Like while you're here, I need to make the most of this, our ability to connect with each other and be with each other almost. You see, I think that kind of modern gloss on presentness, I'm not sure that's in the Stoics. That's a kind of a... Okay. Um, a Buddhist thing or, you know, an Eastern thing. But I don't mm. think that's actually in the Stoics as much as the still the, the present moment kind of thing. I think they're really trying to figure out how to mitigate the vulnerability of life. Mm. How to mitigate or cushion us against tragedy. You know, they grew up in a world knowing Greek tragedy and all mm. the crap that can happen in um, you know, you can eat your children by mistake. You can mm -hmm. Priam lost what, 13 sons in the Trojan War. That's a lot of loss, um, even though the Trojan War lasted a long time. Mm. Um, so I think they're really trying to tell you how can, with Socrates, if, if virtue sufficient for good living, then some of these other things have a different value than than say Aristotle said they did. They're not co-equals. They're just not of the same status. They're of a different status. They, it's better to have them than not, but they're not going to totally make or break your, they shouldn't totally make or break your happiness. That said, as I said before, the more you build up tragedy in a life, and the more there was tragedy before, and the more exposed someone was to harsh, harsh, harsh conditions of deprivation. I mean, think about Syria right now. It'd be hard to imagine being a kid in certain war zones in Syria right now mm. and not suffering, you know, even stoic upbringings. And so they want you to try your hardest to be adaptable and mm. not on convention on the custom of your local culture mm. that's their global that's their global sense but they still i think they they the sage is somewhere on you know mount olympus up there mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and we are constantly having to figure out how is it a good model for us how does it work how do the, you know how do we pull down that chain so we can climb up a little bit. It's not at all obvious how you get from ideal to non-ideal conditions. Mm. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, no, it, it definitely makes sense. And and I like I like that you're thinking about stoicism not from see, I can see now that you've mentioned to me that that, that idea of presentness might be more from the Buddhist idea. Like I can see how my interpretation of stoicism might might be a little bit narrow in that area and maybe they're trying to say something completely different. But I'd like to ask you, how do you think that we should go about approaching our human relation? If you don't think that it's about saying, you know, well, we need to detach ourselves from that. What do you think is the right approach? Great question. So I think we need to recognize that maybe three or four things. One, the Stoics held that our natures are social and that it is 
we're naturally attracted to life with others and mm. we live in and they really thought a kind of cosmos a universe connected by the fact that we share in reason and we happen to also share it with the gods and god and that became important in judeo-christianity and the story that goes on from them hmm. two but we need to have attitudes of of social connection that don't put us at total peril of trauma, mm -hmm. psychotrauma, we can use that term, soul trauma. When we suffer really, really tragic losses. Mm. Those losses, I think they get are going to be deeper Heracles tells us something. The close, the more inner, the closer the outer circle is to this, to us at the center. Mm -hmm. Where he, one of the writers um, tells us that we have, we're in the center, and there are concentric circles around us, and the ones closest to us are nearer and dearer, and we actually have to work on making that most outer circle as close to those that are inside. So because we're at peril of not being empathetic with them if they are so different from ourselves. We go tribal, mm. get tribal, yeah. essentially what he's saying. And so that said, we need to recognize we, given we're attached and given we're more attached to those closer, we have to protect ourselves a bit. Now, contemporary psychology would sort of say, let's protect you after the fact. You have all these losses, you feel guilty for the loss or shame for the loss. I could have I could have done more to get medical help for my child. Why wasn't I listening? Why did I take my eyes off the jungle gym and my kid fell and had a concussion and maybe it's irreversible? That moment when the phone rang and I looked at my screen and there my eyes went away. Okay, all these moments, right? And so contemporary psychotherapy would say, Let's try to expose you to those moments again and reconstruct what happened and help you get rid of some of your guilt. Let, let's take that mm. kind of case. The Stoics have the reverse. Let's not do it after the fact. Let's do it before the fact. Given mm. you're so attached to people, let's do it prophylactically. Let's mm. rehearse. That's their term. Let's rehearse. Sort of like let's, a preventative medicine, you might say. Yeah. Let's uh, have clauses in our language. Um, I look, uh, I strive for this and want it on, you know, but if nothing prevents me from happening, from getting it, so they mm. have, they stick in these uh, buffer zones. Mm. So they're, they're, so A, we are attached and attached in the biggest global ways and more attached the closer in. Mm. B, given that, how do we protect ourselves um, from some of these losses? New labeling devices, let's call them not just external goods that are part of happiness, let's call them indifference that are outside happiness. Mm. That's the philosophical mm. chopping and logic chopping. Eh, not going to do a lot unless you train your emotions as well, and you train them in part through 
pre-rehearsal. It's a, I call it a version of exposure therapy, but it's prophylactic, preventive exposure therapy, as opposed to just as opposed to after the fact, which is a empirically um, uh, based method for treating treating trauma these days. Hmm. Um, and then third, again, back to your question, which you led with: How do we reckon with the fact that we're social creatures and subject to loss? I I do think they. wants us to recognize certain healthy limits, for example, on distress. That we're, where we have, have some volitional control. Going to the mausoleum, which was an example uh, that Cicero gives us in Tuscan Disputations every single day to mourn your husband, the king, Mausolus, is going to protract your grief endlessly. Mm. Yeah. And so change your behavior. And so we, you know, in Judaism, there's a period of grieving in many, you know, there's a period for the open wake in some religions. Hmm. Um, there are um, thought to be not only time heals, but ways in which rituals can kind of change and shift in order that the memory and not just the the horrible pang of loss um, abates you, you hold the memory without the horrible pang of loss so mm -hmm. actually so I it's a long-winded way of answering your question but a we are connected in very very big ways but closer and closer to those that are more intimate to us we feel their feel the loss better B we got to be able to or two we've got to be able to um, um, sort of pre-rehearse potential loss. Hmm. Uh, and thirdly, um, know that there may be reasonable limits on practices of, say, grieving where we're actively contributing to the protraction of our grief. Hmm. Yeah. So you need to understand that boundary between what is natural, as Seneca would have said, you know, that it, some some human emotions are just so inbuilt to it, into us so that it, to not feel those emotions would be inhuman, right? So we need to understand what's inhuman and what's human and kind of learn to separate the two. But right. uh, mm -hmm. also, I, I actually think this is a good place to, to kind of end the conversation because if I ask sure. anything else, I feel like we th there's... Okay, one thing I want to say is I would love to have you back on the show just to discuss the uh, influence that Aristotle had on the Stoics. I think that would be a really interesting discussion to have and and also diving even deeper into your understanding of modern psychology and 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 how it can kind of influence our view of stoicism now but Nancy I am so grateful for this conversation I really think that not only did I need to hear this sort of stuff but I think it's a message that really uh, needs to be spread uh, amongst everyone who's kind of learning stoicism right because uh, what you're trying to do is is bring a, a very mu very much a more human element back into stoicism, uh, and I'm I'm grateful for you and I appreciate you. So thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much, Simon. 
All right, so there you have it, my interview with Professor Nancy Sherman. Now, again, I've got all of the links in the show notes to where you can get her books and find her website and everywhere that she is online. And make sure you reach out to her and let her know just how much you appreciated her coming on the show and sharing her expertise. Uh, Because seriously, it's always great to hear that your words have been appreciated. Uh, But apart from that, you know, I really hope that you guys enjoyed this interview and I'll talk to you next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J.E. Drew. See you next time.